Built Not Born, episode 30. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today, we are honored to kick off the next wave of interviews with Admiral Michael Mittelman. Admiral Mike Mittelman is the president of Salus University in Pennsylvania. Admiral Mittelman served in the U.S. Navy with distinction for 30 plus years and retired as a rear admiral. During his time in the military, Admiral Mittelman was one of the most influential medical professionals to serve in the American military. His Navy career featured a series of firsts. During our discussion today, Admiral Middleman and I discuss how he became the U.S. Navy's first aerospace optometrist, what it was like working for Marine Corps General Jim Mattis while serving as the first non-medical doctor as the command surgeon for U.S. Joint Forces Command Transformation, NATO. Admiral Middleman and I also discuss what it was like being the Deputy Surgeon General of the Navy Admiral Mittelman and I also discussed the lessons he learned when he directed the U.S. military medical response for Operation Tomodachi following the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that damaged the Fukushima nuclear power plant and what it's like now leading Salus University in Pennsylvania as its sixth president. Admiral Mittelman is such an impressive person. He is straightforward. He's direct. He freely shares his life and leadership lessons that he learned along the way. I was so fortunate to be able to sit down with him. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Admiral Michael Mittelman, former Deputy Surgeon General of the Navy, the U.S. Navy's first aerospace optometrist, and the former command surgeon for U.S. Joint Forces Command, NATO. And remember, life is built, not born. Admiral Michael Middleman, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. Honored to have you, sir. Thank you for joining us. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I am currently the president of Salus University. I would say the very proud president of Salus University. We are a health science professions university located in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, where we train a myriad of uh, allied health sciences. Our marquee college is the Pennsylvania College of Optometry. It's the oldest four-year college of optometry in the country. And frankly, our college is the one that really has set the way for which optometry is practiced globally. We set the standard. We were the first ones to have a medical model. So we're extremely proud of that. We also have the Osborne College of Audiology. It's the only freestanding college of audiology in the country. It's the largest program and much like the Pennsylvania College of Optometry, it's medically based and a uniquely excellent program. Uh, and then we have our College of Health Sciences, Education and Rehabilitation, which is, I, I think, our most fascinating college. In that, we have occupational therapy, we have speech and language pathology, we have a physician assistant program, we have blindness and low vision studies, and soon to be an orthotics and prosthetics program, which will be the, only the second one in the Commonwealth. And within this college, we also have a PhD program in biomedicine. So as you can see, we're very diverse. And as, as you look at the specialties that we have at Salus, we have a very unique mix. We're the only university in the country that has this mix of specialties. So we, we do a lot of neat things for a lot of people. We're in the community. We want to be part of the fabric of the communities in which we live and work. Thank you for sharing that. I, I like to get into all of the great stuff you have going on currently at Salus University. Uh, you're 30 plus years in the Navy, which was a, a remarkable series of firsts. But before we get there, I want to start back all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Long Beach, New York. So I, I'm a native New Yorker and proud of it. And for those people who don't know, Long Beach is on the south shore of Long Island, a small beach town, wonderful place to grow up. 
I find 10 years old to be a very formative time in people's lives. What was it like around the dinner table when you were around 10 years old? Who was there? What was going on? Could you describe the scene? Sure. I have a younger sister. My dad worked in retail. He had a haberdashery store in Manhattan. So dad was never home for dinner. So it was my sister, my mom. And, and the discussion was always, what did you do in school? How well did you do? Why didn't you get an A? <laughs> that was the discussion. And uh, usually focused on me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I also, I had my very best friend, Larry Schwartz. And uh, Larry and I were like brothers. And so I spent a lot of time in his house as well. So both between my mom and his parents, they all had a, an unbelievably positive impact on, on me. When you look back to your childhood, what's the most powerful memory? Oh, my. A lot of things. I remember, I was just telling my kids, I remember exactly where I was when President Kennedy was shot. And I was in fifth grade. And so it's about the age group we're talking about. And I, I remember Miss Manzel came in and told us what happened. And I, I, that, that whole weekend of events was vivid. I, I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis and listening to President Kennedy. The, the, I, I think the youth today doesn't understand the stress that we were under as kids then. And, it's, and I, I understand everybody. Today's youth is under a lot of stress, but we had the stress of nuclear war. And that was real. I remember doing the fail-safe drills in the hallway and, and all that stuff. And that's something we talked about and thought about an awful lot then. Each era has its own big, huge news stories and events that changed the course of history. Thinking of that time, even like in 68, the world was on fire in 1968. Absolutely. From yeah. Martin Luther King being assassinated to RFK and uh, Vietnam. Every generation has its thing where they think the world's going to end. That's, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. How about when you think back to that time frame as a child, who was your biggest influence when you were a kid? I had several. I, when I was in um, school, I, I had a speech teacher, and his name was Mr. Lovely. And he, he took some of us under his wing, and he, he was very influential in, in teaching us to think before we talked, and then how to talk and how to communicate. We, we still joke about how Mr. Lovely, if it wasn't for Mr. Lovely, some of us wouldn't be where we are today. And, and it's funny how you touch people. And I'm sure he didn't realize that then. He was just mm -hmm. trying to help some kids. You touch people in ways that you'll never know. That's how the leadership tidbit that I picked up uh, along the way. Now, it's amazing. Uh, there, there's some people that come into your life at a certain point at the right time and give you that one thing and it changes the course, the trajectory of your life. Well, absolutely. And I you know, also referenced my best friend's parents, the Schwartz. His family had a, a huge influence on me, only because I spent so much time with them mm -hmm. and uh, teaching me about the importance of being honest and integrity and all those things. And that lasted. Let's fast forward to say 18 years old. You're ready to graduate. You graduate high school. If they asked the 18-year-old version of Michael Middleman, what do you wanted to be when you grew up? What, what would he say? I wanted to be a lawyer. I messed that one up. but. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then my, my second was maybe I wanted, I, I had cousins who were uh, a cousin going to dental school and another cousin going to law school. So um, there, and we were all very close, but th that intrigued me. And, and I was also frankly intrigued with the Navy at that point. I, I was a big John Kennedy fan. I read Profiles in Courage and, and many of other his things. And I thought that would be very neat. My other incentive at 18 is I wanted to leave home. I did not want to go to college at home. Mm -hmm. And so that was, and that's why I ended up at Jacksonville University in Florida. How'd you pick, how'd you pick that of all the schools? I, I, I had a wonderful pre-med biology program, and they also had a Navy ROTC program. Mm -hmm. um, and I was interested in both. And at that point, the NROTC program at Jacksonville was pretty much brand new. And remember the time, this was Vietnam. So one of the things we were all concerned about was getting drafted. Uh, so let's go to college and make the best of it. And then we can contribute as, you know, as needed. But the whole deal was to get a college education. I was accepted at several other schools, but Jacksonville was the furthest away from home. And so I'm going there. There's nothing like changing your perspective by living somewhere else, even if it's only a few hours away, leaving that bubble you grew up in, I find it just 
the people that do that, they just have a different perspective. Did you speak to that? Just leaving your, your hometown and going somewhere else? I, I, absolutely. And it does change your perspective. And, and in my case, I went someplace that I didn't know anybody else. So all of a sudden, so I forced myself to get involved in things that I never would have to, you know, student government, I got involved in that. And it goes back to Mr. Lovely again, learning to public speak and feel comfortable doing those things. Yeah, almost to a fault. I, I got a little too involved. I had to rebalance the academics the second year. But <laughs> that, that's one of the pitfalls of going away with not having adult supervision. I think we've all been there at some point. How about we have? It, well, it got my attention. And <laughs> it was interesting. My parents were really, I, I don't, it's not that they weren't interested. They just never paid close attention. So it was others who pulled me aside and said, what are you doing? And got me back on track. I, I, was, I, I got in with a pretty good group of friends there. And, um, and they helped, they were all doing the right things. And when you're with the group that's doing the right things, you're going to do the right thing. Absolutely. With the group that's not doing the right thing, that's when you get in trouble. Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, Theodore Roosevelt said something like, jump into the river and like the river will take you. Yeah, and that's what happened. Jack, Jacksonville allowed me to flourish. I, I learned a lot about myself because I was, I was independent and you know, our, it was a small enough school where the professors were very interested in you. To this day, I have connections with the, with the university. Uh, because I felt as like so much a uh, part of that community. So take us fast forward to senior year at Jacksonville University. You're ready to graduate. You're in the ROTC program. What's your next? I year? was in the ROTC program. At that time, Vietnam was uh, winding down. And so they did not need as many people in the Navy at the time. I happened to have a, an old soccer injury. So they sent me, I, I was, I wanted to go into aviation at that point. If I was going into the Navy, I wanted to be a naval aide. So I went to the physical and I got disqualified because of this thing with my knee. So the physician in the, and you, you can never do this today, but then he said, look, he said, I, I can give you a waiver and you can end up on a ship, but you're not going to fly or I can just, you're out. And I said, I don't want to go on a ship. And I got a medical discharge from NROTC at that time. And then I was fairly athletic in those days. I was playing a lot of tennis and I played soccer. So I had the uh, I had knee surgery and got that fixed. And at that point, the Navy was no longer interested. I took a year off from college and I applied to optometry school. So you went to the school you're leading now, Salus at the time, the field up. I did. It was the Pennsylvania College of Optometry. It was a single purpose school then. And it was at that time, it still is, it was the number one school in the country. My roommate in college, a gentleman named Jeff Kraskin, said, I, I, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. I was thinking dentistry, I was thinking med school. He said, Have you thought about optometry? And turns out his dad was a very successful optometrist in Washington, D.C. As a matter of fact, he was Lyndon Johnson's optometrist and the family's uh, optometrist. So here he's taking care of the president of the United States. So I, I go to see this practice <laughs> thinking, this is pretty cool. So they said, why don't you apply to their alma, uh, Dr. Kraskin's alma mater? I did. And I didn't get accepted the first It took me a year. And then I got accepted the second time. And then, as they say, the rest is history. So you graduate from Philip because of optometry in 1980. So 1980, take, us, take us through from that point. How do you go back into the Navy? While I was in optometry school, my parents really didn't have a lot of money, so they couldn't afford to you know, pay the tuition. I didn't want to take out a bunch of loans. So I reapplied uh, to the Navy through the Health uh, Profession Scholarship Program. And I, remember I applied to the Army as well. And I remember getting accepted in both. So obviously I picked the Navy. And in those days, they only give you a two-year scholarship. So they paid for tuition, books. I think we got a $400 stipend, which was more money than we knew what to do with in those days. And then went off to my first duty station. And I, you didn't have much choice uh, coming out of school. They put you where they needed you, although they wanted to make sure you had some adult supervision as a new provider. But they sent me to a small naval hospital on a Marine Corps air station, Cherry Point. And I was with one other optometrist who graduated from the Illinois College of Optometry. And we practiced together. We taught each other because he was just as green as I was. That's what, where my love of aviation really started because it was Marine Corps air station. Mm -hmm. And I just fell in love with it. It was a great group. We, we were there. I was newlywed. I'd met my wife my last year of optometry school, uh, doing an extern on the Indian Health Service in the reservation out in Rosebud, South Dakota. But so we got married in 1980. During off, I went to my first duty station. At what point 
did oh, you uh, decide the Navy is going to be a career path for you? <laughs> it wasn't that. I had started a moonlight practice in town, and I fully intended to get out of the Navy after three, maybe four years, and practice in North Carolina and live happily ever after. I didn't love the private practice aspect of optometry. For me, it just wasn't for me. And then around the same time of making these decisions, I got a phone call from our specialty leader, the head optometrist of the Navy, asking if we wanted to go over to Rota, Spain, and I would be the only optometrist there. And I jumped at that. I went home and we had our first child. So our oldest daughter, at that time, was three months old. And off we go to Rota, Spain. My wife is uh, very much an adventurer, so she was all in. And so off we went. And Rota was amazing from a professional perspective. So you're there for three years, 84 to 87 in Rota, Spain. What did you learn there? Yeah, at that point, I got the idea that aviation needed optometric, an optometric specialty. Naval aviation needed an optometric specialty. We have flight surgeons who were general physicians who you know, were excellent at doing healthcare stuff, but they weren't vision specialists. I had seen enough accidents and things happen at Cherry Point where I realized that, and they used my expertise when I was there, but there was nothing institutionalized. So it turns out the commanding officer in Rota was a naval flight surgeon, Dr. Bill Buckingdorf, a wonderful guy. I told him my idea of, be, of becoming aerospace optometrist. I said, we, we need this. And he was extremely supportive of this. But he said, the only way you can do this, Mike, is if you go to Pensacola, because that's the cradle of naval aviation. That's where we train all our flight surgeons. That's where it all happens. So it was pretty much, that was the tipping point for us, because I said, okay, I want to do this. And so we, we made the deal to go to Pensacola, not knowing if I'd be able to do any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. It was a big question mark, but at least I would have an opportunity to try. Uh, so and that's, I, I was thrilled with that. You literally became the Navy's first ever aerospace optometrist. I, I did. And we backdoored it, but we got it done. I, I worked with two wonderful ophthalmologists when I was at the Naval Aerospace Medical Institute, Dr. Um, Andy Markovitz and Dr. Phil Briska. Unfortunately, they're both um, deceased now, but they, they were not only wonderful mentors, but they were unbelievably supportive. So the, they arranged for me to go through the Navy's flight surgeon program as an aerospace physiologist, because there was no other way to do this, at least administratively. But they, they actually saw my patients for me and, and just picked up my slack so I can go through this very rigorous six-month training program. And uh, you're not familiar with this probably, but the Navy trains their flight surgeons, physiologists, all their aeromedical specialists the same way they train naval aviators. So consequently, I went through primary flight training and learned how to fly, learned how to go to an aircraft carrier. I was very lucky. I got to do a carrier qual on the USS Lexington with, with an instructor pilot, of course, and uh, way back when. And of course, the Lexington now is a museum, <laughs> but it was, it was quite an experience. But I learned all about the different aspects of naval aviation there firsthand. What was it like uh, the first time you took off on a plane? Pilot. It was a hoot. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I, you got, the Navy's training is, is amazing because by the time you actually sit in the airplane, you've been sitting in simulators and you've been doing all of these protocols so that by the time you're actually in the airplane, it's okay. Obviously, the sounds and the movements are different, but you feel pretty comfortable. You'll, you're obviously nervous, but you, you've got an instructor with you. So they're not going to let you kill yourself. And, but they, you're taking off and, and you're doing some very basic things. So by the time I completed the, that program, I, I felt pretty comfortable in an airplane. And I, I just fell in love with it. Yes. And so from that point on, they say the rest is history. We now have uh, a, a bona fide aerospace optometry program in the Navy with 35, 40 uh, wing wearers. Wow. So I'm, I'm extremely proud of that. The first. Wow, that is awesome. The next first I see in your career, you're the first optometrist to command a major naval hospital in Okinawa, Japan. how that happen? I got a phone call. And, and the truth in advertising, 
I worked for an optometrist. When I went to Cherry Point, the commanding officer there was an optometrist, Dr. Don. I guess they don't consider Cherry Point a, a major hospital. It's more of a community hospital. So Okinawa, though, is a um, it's the Navy's largest tertiary care hospital um, overseas. Prior to that, I was the commanding officer of the Naval Ophthalmic Support and Training Activity, NOSTRA, in Yorktown, Virginia. And I actually I acted as a turnaround leader. At the time, Secretary Rumsfeld wanted to close the command because he couldn't figure out why the Navy was making glasses and why it cost so much. So based, frankly, le- leveraging the expertise there, I was just a catalyst. We were able to turn around that command. I had some great helpers. I had a wonderful executive officer, Captain Mike Patterson. And I had probably the, the most talented enlisted optician crew that had been there. And they were fabulous. But I, I basically said to them, if, if you were king for the day, how would you design this place so it worked more efficiently? Mm-hmm. And they all had wonderful ideas. And we operationalized that. We saved millions of dollars over the course of three years. And because of that success, I, I got noticed to go and command the hospital. And it didn't hurt that I have wonderful mentors and and the name of Rear Admiral Todd Fisher and Rear Admiral Don Arthur. Those guys were fabulous mentors and they looked out for me. And frankly, they're the ones who made sure I got to Okinawa. Wow. So just to synthesize there, just to take a couple of takeaways. One, you <laughs> had a great, lot of stuff there. Yeah. You had great mentors. All right. So it's always no matter Absolutely. where you are in your career, you need someone. You always need someone. I, I have. You need someone above. In Pensacola, we met who are now our closest friends from the Navy, Jeannie and Jerry Petit. Jerry served as my mentor, or still does, throughout my entire career. But he introduced me to others who also served as mentors. And you can't do anything in any large organization uh, unless you have people looking out for you and teaching you and, and just look, making sure you're making the right decisions at the right time. And, and if they're truly your mentor and your friend, they're going to tell you things that you don't want to hear. And Jerry in particular was just the best. Let's go to the other side. When you took command to modernize or or streamline the processes, it's not like you had all the answers. You brought it to the people, your team. What do you think we need to do? And you crowdsourced (laughs) ideas and say, hey, everyone. Absolutely. I didn't want to go to this command. You know, most optometrists aspired to go to this command. I wanted to stay in the hospital side of things. When I got selected for captain, I was the, I I believe I was probably the only one qualified, uh, only because I was a Navy captain at the time. And so I was last man standing, if you would. And so they, I got tapped to do that. Now, I'm sure they had greater expectations. I remember my dad, when we had our change of command, walking inside, especially a factory. My dad put his hand around my shoulder, and only as a dad can do, he looked at me and said, what the hell do you know about this stuff? (laughs) I said, Dad, you hit the nail on the head. I read a couple of books, learning as I go here, but hopefully I got good help. And I was lucky. I had a great staff. Good people around you, like strong mentors, a great staff, crowdsourcing. You've got to surround yourself with good people. Yeah. How about just fast forward a little bit here? Then the next first I noticed was you're the first non-medical doctor to serve as the combatant command surgeon in the U.S. Pacific Command, which is the the nation's largest, covers what, like 60% of the world's population, China, Russia, North Korea. How'd that happen? That's a big Well, prior to that, I was the first non-physician to serve as the command surgeon for U.S. Joint Forces Command, and I was also the NATO medical advisor. So I worked for uh, General Jim Mattis. Did you so really? Wow. I did. And <coughs> that, that, that alone was a wonderful leadership experience. What was it like working for General Mattis? Demanding, and but you know it was fascinating because, as you recall, we were in Afghanistan, and General Mattis had two jobs. He was the NATO commander for the all the NATO work that was done in Norfolk. So we were doing a lot of laydown for what is the, what is the what is the military laydown look like in Afghanistan. I was responsible for the medical part of the medical laydown on NATO's part. And then we were also the joint force provider. So as different forces needed to go forward, we were the ones who were working with the services to provide those to provide the forces. It was a very rigorous job. I, I got to work with many of our allies and friends over in uh, NATO. 
learned an awful lot. My deputy was a, a British colonel who's today a British general, which I think he just retired actually. And it was a, a wonderful learning experience. At that command, the leadership group there was phenomenal. Many of the folks who were at GIFCOM and NATO at the time all went on to become leaders in the services. Matter of fact, one of my counterparts became the chief of naval operations. Another one became in, in, in Amsterdam and you know in Holland, the chief of their services. So everybody did really well. So it was a great learning experience. And from there, though, I got selected to go to U.S. Pacific Command, partially because I had the experience in, in the, what they call the joint world. And, and the other is that the Surgeon General at the time thought I was the best person to go over there. I, I was a newly selected two-star, and it's, it was a very busy AOR. And, and ironically, I didn't want to go. I'd already been a, 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 you know, a, a command surgeon. I didn't want to do that twice. And all my friends, and especially the Surgeon General, <laughs> convinced me, yes, you do want to go. And um, it turns out it was one of the best tours I ever had. Looking back to your time as the command surgeon at U.S. Joint Forces at NATO and working under General Mattis, if you had to take a leadership lesson from someone like that or that time, what would it be? Boy, be succinct, know your facts, and, and just do the right thing. And in General Mattis's case, it was my job to obviously do the medical stuff, but it was also my job to help educate him and the staff about what medical was capable of doing. And because, you know, the, these, these leaders are, they, they just assume things are going to happen. Now, General Mattis, as a Marine, had a very good understanding of Navy medicine because Navy medicine takes care of the U.S. Marine Corps. But he really did not notice the work that the Joint Medical Service was doing over in Afghanistan. So it was my job to keep him informed and to make sure that things were working smoothly. It was all about communication. And I found that the more I was able to communicate with him effectively, the easier it was for me to do my job and the more comfortable he was with the medical support that he had. Just summarizing there, basically be succinct, know what you're doing or know your facts. And then when you're put in control or put in charge, always do the right thing. And then almost over-communicate when you're in a Oh, I, absolutely. Well, I, I learned that. You keep relearning that lesson. The other thing is when you don't know, say you don't know. It's okay. I, I have no problem saying that. Mm -hmm. But it, it is. People do not want to be have smoke blown at them. Mm -hmm. uh, the, these guys, they need the facts. They need them correct. And they need them when they ask for them. And it's your job to make sure that they get them. Why do you think it takes such, I guess, confidence or lack of ego to say you don't know? I see it in the business world. I see it in the jujitsu world. If someone asks you a move and if you don't know, they'll say, they'll make something up or give you a half an answer. Instead, it takes such courage <laughs> to say, I don't know. Let, give me some time. Why, why is that so you know, hard for people to do? You've got kids. I, I think people are insecure and people are afraid. I, and I think it's worse now. I, I think we've gotten to the point where zero errors mm -hmm. and, and zero tolerance. From my perspective, for me, it's a sign of strength mm -hmm. when you say, I don't know. It's a sign of weakness when you just blab and, and do other things. So I just think it's people are just not confident in their own ability sometimes. Uh, even with my own staff, I, I relish when they're honest and open and transparent with me. <laughs> and, and they are for the most part. But you have to build that. And that's a leadership skill as in and of itself. You don't want to shoot the messenger, right? I think it builds a high level of trust as well. When someone tells you multiple times throughout your interactions with them through the year, they don't know. But when they give you an answer, then you're more inclined to believe them. Wow, this person is not afraid to tell me when they don't know something. No, exactly. but when they you know, the, the, the way it was with Joe Mattis, I don't know, sir, but I will get back to you with the answer. You, you absolutely needed to say that because that's your job. When you're in support, you need to support. And when in our job, Navy Medicine, we're supporting the warfighter. And if he's got a question, I got to give him the answer. Mm -hmm. And you know, he may not like the answer sometimes, but that happened too. But they, but the thing is, good leaders appreciate that. One part of your time at U.S. Pacific Command that really got my attention was you directed the U.S. military's response to Operation Friends following the 2011 tsunami and earthquake that damaged the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Yeah, Operation Tomodachi. Yes, that, that was fascinating. I, I'm an optometrist. What do I know about nuclear medicine? But when, when this thing transpired, it was fabulous how the joint world of expertise came together quickly. All I needed to do 
when I knew I needed help, and I knew I knew I needed help very quickly when I realized three nuclear reactors were about to melt down and a fourth was a risk, I picked up the phone and I called my service colleagues and I said, I, I need nuclear experts here. And the, the Navy has a lot of them, but so do the other services. And w- within a day, or my office, which maybe had I, maybe six or seven core people, I must have had 20 experts sitting in my office helping us sort through all of the issues that were coming at us at 100 miles an hour. Things like, how do we make sure the water's safe? We, we had to write a whole new water standard because the EPA didn't have a standard for these kinds of things when the emergencies like this happen overseas. But my, my, my nuclear physicist from the Navy in particular helped us write that w- along with the EPA. I, I had a preventive medicine physician on my staff and, and she just did a yeoman's job of working with the EPA in the middle of the night because we're in Hawaii and everybody else is back in Washington. So, you know, it's two in the morning for us when it's eight in the morning there. We're getting the work done. And and then we have to negotiate with the others, with the service preventive measures. Do do we hand out potassium iodide pills or not to ensure that people don't get radiation sickness? And the reason we're not going to do it is because of this. Do we evacuate people? Do we evacuate just people who are pregnant, people who are children, just in case? So all of these things were going on and it wasn't done in a vacuum. This was a true whole of government approach. I, I was amazingly educated and impressed about how um, you know, nuclear regulatory agency came together with the EPA, with you know local people in Japan, and then working with national command authority, basically the president and the vice president, because they needed to know what was going on. So my boss is communicating directly with that, with information that you know my, me and my staff were providing. It was a busy couple of months. Some perspective on that, looking at that response that you led had 24,000 service personnel, weren't you there, 150 aircrafts, and dozens of naval ships. I, I certainly wasn't commanding that. I was responsible for the medical portion. Okay. But what we were responsible for were about 100,000 people, military members, their families, members of the, uh, you know, from the State Department. Who were stationed in Japan. We were responsible for their health and safety. So consequently, we worked very closely with the ambassador's staff and the ambassador. He and I met several times to discuss what are we doing, how are we doing it. And, and, and I'll circle back to communication. Many of the things that we did involved educating the population about safety. Was the water safe? Is the food safe? Is the air safe? And then why? How? And we wanted to ensure that we had the right expertise looking at all of the right things to ensure that people were safe. And in fact, if there was an, there was an issue, we would tell them. How did you know it's something, an operation that large and so many moving parts, at what point did you feel confident that the situation was under control? Like, how can you ascertain that? Oh, it was never. <laughs> I, I, it, it took me probably several weeks into the evolution because we, we didn't know what was going to happen. If you recall, Every day, depending which way the wind blew, that, that's the way the nuclear plume would go. Now, we were extremely lucky because the plume was going out to sea. If the wind had shifted, we'd be telling a different story today. We would have had a mass evacuation, I suspect. So we were very lucky in that respect. So we were watching all these things. I, I, I felt comfortable, if I can use that word, probably about two or three weeks in when I had all the right expertise around me. We had established what water standards were. We'd established a strategic communication plan. I knew when I'd be going to Japan to be talking to the populations and then getting a handle on things. But it took that long simply because it was such a fluid situation at the time. Thank you for sharing that story. So what point do you realize your naval career is winding down and you're ready to go back to the civilian world? How does that happen? You get a phone call saying, hey, would you like to apply for this job? <laughs> I I wasn't ready. I I was the deputy surgeon general of the Navy. I was, and I was working with the surgeon general, who not only was a great friend but somebody I greatly respected. We were doing really neat things. We we, we were putting Navy medicine on, on a path that we that was very effective at the time. They're, they're establishing a defense health agency. I was involved in that. So a lot of moving parts, and then out of the blue. I got a phone call from Dr. Tom Lewis, who was my predecessor at Salus, saying, hey, I'm retiring this year. You need to apply for the job. And I went, and he said, no, you got nothing to lose. I think you should. 
So I went home and talked to my wife and she said, you can't stay in the Navy the rest of your life. And I went, really? I, I knew that. And you always have a shelf life in any job you're in. But I, I also talked to some mentors and asked them what they thought. And I remember talking to the CNO at the time, John Greener. Uh, and I asked him, I said, what do you think? And he said, I've always wanted to be a college president. I'm like, why wouldn't you do that? And I went, okay. So I, I applied. As they say, the rest is history there. But I did not think I'd be competitive. I'm not an academic per se, but the university wasn't looking for an academic. They were looking for a change agent. My success, my predecessor was here for over 40 years, did an, an unbelievably fabulous job of taking us from single purpose to university, but he was ready to leave. And, and he did something that was rather magnanimous. He, he offered to stay an additional year if I got selected so that I can serve out my tour as the deputy surgeon general and, and then come on board here, So, which is exactly what happened. Wow. So that's how you make the transition. And I, it, so it's a lot of communication, talking to mentors, seeing what they think, bouncing ideas around. Absolutely. And, I, I was not comfortable with the decision, frankly, until I got here. When you live your life for 33 years in the Navy, uh, and then all of a sudden you jump into academia, it's quite a culture difference. Things in the Navy move relatively quickly, sometimes, especially I'm the Deputy Surgeon General. If I want something... Uh, generally, it got done. Believe it or not, as the president of the university, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so your new mission, you saw 2013, you joined Salas. I, as, I did, July of 2013. Yep, as the sixth president? Yep. Sixth president, yeah, because everybody else was president yeah. of the optometry school prior. Dr. Lewis was the first president of Salas. I'm actually the second president of Salas. And so I see in one interview, you said, my goal, it might not be for this particular uh, time frame, you said, my goal is to make the place better than when I arrived. You said that was Absolutely. one of the- it's, it's always my goal. Yeah. Uh, you, you always need to leave a place better than the way you found it. And this place was, it, it had some challenges when I got here. What did you say? Um, so you got here. What, it, how long did you take from like, you always see like a, a new senator or a new governor. They go on like a listening tour. They don't do anything. They just observe. And then I, how long did you, how long did I, you I did? I did a hundred days of listening. I, 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 I advertised a hundred days of listening where I met with all of the constituencies and just did it basically my own environmental scan. Now I had to make some changes in, in within those hundred days because circumstances arose that forced my hand. I had to make some personnel changes. We had a program that had some issues that nobody knew about. Uh, so I, I was there maybe two and a half, three months where I had a couple of hot issues to take care of. And we did. So after 100 days of listening, what was your first move? What did you, what did you ascertain? I, I ascertained that while we had a great foundation for a university, we didn't have a lot of the moving parts that are needed to have a efficient and effective organization. In many places, we were one deep or no deep. Like the president was doing multiple tasks. That, of course, I come from a leadership model where we delegate. My predecessor, was his leadership model was, I'll do everything. And so we, there was very little delegation. And so I started delegating. And the interesting thing is, there's a very, I, I inherited a very talented staff here. At so it was interesting as, as soon as I started empowering people to do things like budget, things started getting done uh, a little bit more effectively and efficiently. We were a relatively new university at that point. A lot of the policies dated back to when we were a single purpose college. So we spent a lot of time going over the policies. We did strategic planning. The school had always done strategic planning very effectively. But it was on a five-year cycle. I thought that was much too long. So I put that, I changed it to a three-year cycle with one-year annual plan so that we can track ourselves using metrics. And that, that made a huge difference. One of the first things we did, I started a new program. I started the speech and language program and uh, speech and language pathology program. That came on my first year. They had been talking and they just never pulled the trigger. Same thing with our three-year optometry program. We call it the scholars program. The team had presented it to me and I thought that was a wonderful idea. So I said, let's get that going. What would make such unique? Within my first year and a half, we started two new programs. That was a game changer for us moving forward. One thing, getting back to the art of delegation, the one thing you see when you delegate, like you said, you empower others that do the work, have more influence in the organization. Then what you're doing is you're developing the next generation of leaders there. You're empowering them to be Absolutely. the lead. 
And then a couple of years, yeah, then they become then their leader. Then there's more leaders in the, on the organization. That's the leadership model I grew up in in the Navy. And that's, that's the only way. And people may think I'm lazy because I don't want to do this, that, and the other thing. And it has nothing to do with that. I, I really want to make sure that people are, first of all, people need to feel fulfilled. And then if they they know their job, obviously they do, but they need to be able to do it. My big thing is servant leadership. I turn that pyramid upside down. Mm-hmm. And so my, my job, and I told my staff that when I got to Salas and I tell them that today, my job is to ensure that they have the tools that they need to do their job. That could be not to both tools, but it also means skill sets. And by holding people accountable and responsible, I, I believe I'm doing them a real favor in their own professional growth. Mm-hmm. When you look at your time at Salus, what do you think from your perspective, what was the biggest challenge you faced? It was when I first got there. We had a program on academic on accreditation probation that happened Quickly, another one of our programs was not doing as well as it should. But people were just spinning, doing their own thing. So the biggest challenge I had was to get everybody moving in the same direction under what you know we call one salus, uh, thinking as a university, not as single-purpose silos. Mm-hmm. And we're still not there yet perfectly, but we're certainly a lot better than we were. Uh, but that was a huge challenge. I had to make some very difficult personnel changes with people who have been there for a long time. These people had their heart and soul in this place, but there was just no place for them in, in this, in what I envisioned as the, the next phase of the university. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's always, for me, the hardest thing is to, to make personnel changes like that. Yeah, understood. The author, John Maxwell, speaks of, has a book called Failing Forward. Can you think of a failure of yours that set you up most for future success? Like looking back, do you have a favorite failure? <laughs> I've got lots of failures. <laughs> a favorite failure. It's, it, it's more like personnel management. This is where I learned that it's, it's not about me as the leader. It's about everybody else. And this was this was when I was at Nostra, the Naval Ophthalmic Sport and Training Activity, probably even before that. When I got there, I figured, okay, I'm in charge. I'm going to do things. I learned pretty quickly that by telling people what to do, people will push back, they'll get passive aggressive, and things actually got get worse. And that actually, so I learned pretty quickly that, look, I, I got to bring people into this. And I, I remember talking to several of my mentors, and they said, look, just be more patient and, and bring people along with you. And that lesson, whether it be from Mike Cowan, another mentor, Jerry Patia mentor, and treating people gently has served me well. There are times when you need to be uh, aggressive and more authoritative, but frankly, you're, you're always better off by trying to build consensus. So uh, moving forward just a little bit here, your years into your presidential tenure at Salus, then all of a sudden, one of the biggest events in, in the last 50 years happens, the COVID-19 shutdown through no fault of anyone, like mother nature throws a hundred year pandemic at us that shuts the world down. So yep. looking back, what's the biggest lesson you took from co- the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, it's, it's to fall back on my prior experience. I, everybody, a lot of people are panicking. I'll be honest with you, I didn't panic. I, I remember I, we were watching this and we, we were in China, actually, my international team and I, in December before this thing percolated. So we were very aware of what was going on. And I got a degree in public health. So I wrote about this in December. So we, we were watching it and I, I, I had been talking about it. So the, the school was not totally caught off guard. But when you know it looked like we were going to close down, I remember doing a, a recording for the university community saying, look, we're going to close. They're saying two weeks. We'll see what it is. And we were ready. Uh, and here's the thing. We did scenario planning in 2017. Obviously, we didn't talk about a global pandemic. But what we did talk about was the importance of learning how to do hybrid education and distance learning and things along the lines to keep up with what the student demand will be, we were thinking 15 years down the road. So consequently, our scenario planning informed our strategic planning, which all obviously supports our budgeting. So we bought all this infrastructure to do distance learning and distance education. And my, the, the credit for our pivot, we did, we pivoted over a weekend, it goes to my faculty and the student, because I made the announcement and they took it upon themselves to do what was necessary to ensure that the students got what they needed, first and foremost. And then we were able to provide our 
at least didactic portion of what we're doing to the students over the weekend. Now, I also decided that I, I probably needed to get engaged with the local healthcare communities and, and such. So I, I was very um, aggressive with the with Dr. Levine at the time, and then locally with Bella Kush and her group and here in Montgomery County, who were extremely supportive. But just in, in advocating the fact that health science professions need to get back to campus so we can get back to our lab work and our clinical work so we can keep the pipeline going. And we had developed protocols quickly. I was, once again, great staff. So we put that together very quickly and they asked to see our protocols. And within a couple of weeks, we were back in labs. So when Pennsylvania was red, we, we had students on campus. So continuing. Our whole goal was to try to graduate as many students as we could on time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we didn't succeed in getting 100%, but we got pretty close. I think 40 or so students didn't graduate. On well, thank you for sharing that. How about as you look forward, as we're slowly emerging from the pandemic, or at least merging into the next phase of the pandemic, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? We are starting an orthotics and prosthetics program at the university, which will hopefully kick off in next fall. And it'll be the, only the second program of its kind. It'll become part of the College of Health um, Sciences Education Rehab. And it's, it's pretty exciting. because, Unfortunately, because of the epidemic of obesity and diabetes in our country, we have a lot more amputees. And because we have a lot more amputees, we need people to make prosthetics for them. And it's, it's one of these older professions that have a lot of artistry and skills, but it's an older. Most of the providers today are getting ready to retire. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge demand. And so we're going to try to meet that demand. I, I'm unbelievably excited about this. And at the same time, we're also going to be doing another major renovation in the university where we're going to modernize the cafeteria and the student life section because that's only almost 40 years old. O- over the course of my tenure, we've modernized all the labs. We've modernized the, laborator- the uh, laboratories. Uh, we've ma- modernized the classrooms. We've modernized the library. So the last bastion there is the cafeteria and the student life area. And so I'm pretty excited about both these projects. It's pretty neat. Good luck with that. I want to switch over to a a section of the interview we call Share Your Secrets, just so the listeners can get to know you a little bit more as a person. And a little rapid fire, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? I go work out. Yeah. I I swim, bike, and run. Swim, awesome. I'm a triathlete, and um, okay. I'm doing less less running these days, but a lot more biking and swimming. Awesome. And I do boot camp. But one one of the things that got me through is getting me through the pandemic is I, I've got this group of folks. We work out every morning at five in the morning at the parking lot of the YMCA. And this is now the third year we're doing this, but we it's religiously done, and it, it you know it clears your mind, keeps your body healthy. And my, my feeling as a healthcare provider, if I'm going to give somebody advice about nutrition and healthy lifestyle, I've got to live it myself. Mm-hmm. Sure. How about- Well, you know, you take care of yourself so you can take care of everybody else. It's almost like that airplane, uh, when they drop the mask, you got to put your mask on first before you start exactly. seeing people. Yeah. Exactly. But that's what I do. I work out. Awesome. That's great. How about, is there a book that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? And I don't have a favorite book. I have a couple. James Hunter writes about, it's called The Servant Leader. That probably, a friend of mine gave that to me on my way to my first command. And that probably influenced my command style more than anything, at least going in. Believe it or not, Profiles in Courage. I I can't even remember half the details of that. But I I just remember some of the life stories coming out of that way back when. Mm-hmm. And I, I read Simon Sinek and, and all those guys, good to great, the things that you would expect. But I said, James Hunter was probably my most influential leadership or, or author. Good to great is uh, one of mine. I just remember fire yeah. bullets before cannonballs. And I've used exactly. that a thousand <laughs> times in my life. We just try something little to see if it works before you put And then the, right. uh, and, and Simon Sinek, too, that infinite game where it's not to win or lose, it's to keep playing. And I, that well, changed my mind. Uh, well, the other that. one is about the importance of why. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I always ask, why are we doing it? Why do students come to Salus? That left that was a real, left a real impression on me because I'm a, I'm a why person. Why are you doing this? Uh, and if you can't answer the why, you shouldn't be doing it. Oh, that's great. How about what's your personal definition of success? 
Boy, it's health, happiness, and a great family. Health, happiness, and a great family. What values do you try to pass on to your students? This is going to sound cliche-ish, but it's honor, courage, and commitment. It goes back to what I've learned in the Navy. It's, it goes, it's, so that speaks to trust. It's, it speaks to honesty. You know, courage and honesty go hand in hand, in my opinion. You have to have the courage to be honest sometimes, but there's always a payoff for that. And commitment. You need to commit yourself to something, uh, a cause, a job, a family, multiple things often. I learned early on in my career that if you make a commitment, you keep it and you, you see it through. And it's just so important. And that, that builds trust. Because you got no trust, no nothing. One of my well, mentors I, told me, you know. They, they, yeah, no, you're right. It's inter- I'll tell you an interesting story. When I got to the university, nobody believed we were going to do some of the things we were going to do. I said, we're going to modernize the clinical procedures laboratory for optometry. And, and all the faculty said, because of the history there, oh, you'll never do it. That didn't compute to me. I said, we're going to do it. That means we're going to do it. Oh, no, we'll never do it. We did it. And we're going to modernize the library here in London. I wouldn't tell you that if we weren't going to do it. <laughs> it's a mindset. But Part of leadership. It really is. Changing the really culture is. and the mindset. Three more questions to be respectful of your time, Admiral. Fun question. If you could spend a day with any historical figure, alive or dead, who would it be? Oh, my gosh. Alive. You know, I'd love to be with the Wright brothers. Oh, yeah? Cool. I, I just to watch them figure out how do you get this thing to fly? And then what were they thinking? They got in this thing, not once, but multiple times, and just be there to watch that. I, I just how think crazy did they, they have to be? And they had to be certifiably insane to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. I, I know you might be looking for something deeper, but I, I just think that would be fascinating. We're saying Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, sitting there watching them be the right. first people to propel themselves in the air. Yeah, that's wow. Thanks for sharing that. All right, two more questions. We started saying you grew up in uh, Long Island, South Shore of Long Island. If you could go back to the South Shore of Long Island at 10 years old to speak to the people around that dinner table, what would you want to tell them? Oh, wow. Don't be afraid to take risks. Don't be afraid to follow your dream. It's okay. Sometimes it'll work out. Sometimes it won't. But the one thing I did learn is, and I would share, is it's okay to try things. You're not going to fail. You're not going to succeed every time, but you learn from your failures. Absolutely. Last question. Admiral, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what <laughs> would that quote or motto say? See, everybody who knows me will say, proceed until apprehended. <laughs> proceed until, until apprehended. apprehended. <laughs> that is about as good of a spot as any to end. Admiral Michael Middleman, it's been an honor. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. And I wish you nothing but future success at South University. If people are looking for you or Salus University and all your programs online, where can they find you? www.salus.edu. Salus.edu. Admiral Middleman, thank you for your time, sir. Joe, thanks. It's been a pleasure.